This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Pakistan has experienced a, quote, monsoon on steroids. It's the heaviest rainfall the country has ever seen, and it's causing massive devastation that affects millions. Catastrophic flooding in Pakistan has killed more than 1,000 people. Entire villages have been washed away by the floodwaters, and officials say nearly 1 million homes have been damaged or destroyed. Earlier this summer, we saw rivers swell and inundate rural Kentucky and parts of southern Illinois, wiping away roads, schools, and killing dozens. In Chicago, heavy rains led to flooding, too. And the result here is water and sewage flooding people's basements. Joining us now to talk about the toll this flooding takes is Leslie Honoré, Park Manor resident and communication director at Chicago Neighborhood Technology. Welcome back, Leslie. Sasha, thank you for having me on. Bob Dean is CEO of the Center. He also joins us. Hey, Bob. Uh, Hello. And rounding out our panel is Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor and Director of Loyola University Chicago's Baumert Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hi, Sasha. Great to talk to you. Bob, let's start with you. How frequently are we seeing this kind of flooding in Chicago? And where is it happening? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, this kind of flooding is happening more and more frequently. It always has been a relatively frequent occurrence in certain neighborhoods. And because of climate change, it really is happening more and more. So, so, so the scale of the problem here is bigger than many people realize. Um, flooding damage from these kind of storms in the Chicago region uh, adds up to about $200 million a year, and probably more because that's mainly based on insurance claims. So that's the equivalent in a decade of being hit by a major hurricane. Yeah. But it gets a lot less attention. Uh, uh, when you uh, say flooding, people think of, of rivers overflowing their banks or storm surge on the coast. But here, because it's in basements, it's a lot less evident. And, but in terms of where it happens, yeah. uh, it doesn't happen where you might expect. Uh, about 90% of the flooding is outside of official floodplains, and instead it correlates very much with race and income. So the most recent calculations that we've done is that about 87% of flooding damage in Chicago is in black and Latino communities. So that's who it's impacting. Karen, what role then does uh, the sewer system play into this? Yeah, as Bob mentioned, it's it's throughout Chicago and certainly concentrated. And what we're seeing is the rain falls and where does the rain go? And it, if you go back hundreds of years, the city was a wetland. So the rain would just land and it wouldn't have to go anywhere. But now we've paved over everything or we've got roof surfaces. And so the water gets channeled into the sewer And it ends up in what we have in the city of Chicago, which is a combined sewer system. So underground, the pipes from your kitchen and your bathroom will connect to the drain pipes and the streets. So all of that water mixes underground in the sewer system. So instead of landing in a wetland, it ends up channeled into pipes that don't have the capacity always to hold it. And I have a feeling climate change is making it worse. It is. And we've got the backdrop of climate change with rising temperatures and rising volatility. And one way to think about that is when temperatures are warmer, the air can hold more water. And kind of a shorthand is for every degree warmer, the air can hold maybe 4% more water. So what we're having is more rain in really short periods of time. Mm -hmm. And so those pipes that we were just talking about, they can't handle it when it comes that fast. So if you have two inches in an hour, that's too much. Whereas if that same two inches happened over a week, the system could handle it. But short, volatile storms, the system's not built for it. Leslie, paint a picture for us. What's your experience been with flooding? So my experience is that whenever it rains, if it's more than a sprinkle, if substantial, I need to have my rain boots in the car to get to my house without my ankles being covered in water. 
um, and I'm going to have water in my basement. The heavier the rain or the heavier the melt of the snow, more water. I have come to embrace the water and be grateful that it's not sewage because I've had that happen as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's consistent. So every time that happens, I mean, walk me through what you do. It sounds like it's happening so frequently that you've probably got a system to to deal with it now. Yes. At first, I thought it was not going to be a regular occurrence, so I wasn't prepared. So now we know nothing but on the floor in the basement. Um, Everything's been like the Sterilite Rubbermaid Big Bends if we have to have anything down there. And I have my rain boots in the car. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's extra planning. This this kind of flooding can also lead to mold, right, which can cause respiratory problems. How is that affecting you? Well, I have a severely asthmatic, um, the youngest of my three. Um, so I'm always hyper-concerned um, about how that contributes to her overall respiratory health. Um, and I think once I started really understanding why it was happening, it alleviated my own feelings as a parent, like I wasn't doing something right, or there was something wrong with my house, and really understanding the systemic nature of why it happens in my community, Mm -hmm. and why um, my friends or colleagues who live on the north side have no idea what I'm talking about when I laugh and say, oh, it's raining outside, I'll go swimming in my basement. Yeah. And I want to make sure it's clear. I mean, you've sort of got down the the one-two step here that you've um, graduated toward after dealing with this so much, but this is taking an emotional toll as well, right? This constant flooding? It, it is um, because it's a constant reminder of how the city has been created in ways that aren't um, for black and brown people. Our communities suffer at environmental racism every turn, every whether it's highways going through um, black communities, whether it's freight going through brown communities, whether it's poor infrastructure that never seems to get the money to repair it, though other neighborhoods do. It's a constant reminder of the devaluing of black and brown communities and what we are expected to bear and live with and all of the legacies that it creates. Um, so it, it can be very uh, heavy yeah. because it's not just about the weather. It's, it's targeted. It's, it feels like a personal problem, you think? Absolutely. I, I, and I think if you don't understand that it's not, that gets internalized. It's something I didn't pick the right house. I need to move the neighborhood. So I didn't do something right. I didn't get the right appraisal. Somebody didn't check it. And for our, our kids, it's this feeling of this happens in my community because this is what's supposed to happen. You know, it's that internalized feeling of worthlessness because no one is addressing it. Your work, though, with uh, the Center for Neighborhood Technology, it changed your mind a little. Absolutely. Um, and uh, why I love what I do, it's, it's this education and informing while advocating, while thinking of what are the solutions that we can do? What are the green solutions that are logical? And at the same time, advocating for policy change, bringing attention to people who don't know the issues are there and the people who do and turn a blind eye to it. Um, so it's it's really creating this strong bridge between what communities are facing and the nuanced solutions that are there and that we just need to put our hands on and, and connect to. Bob, I'm going to jump back to you here. You've been listening to my conversation with Leslie. In your view, this is really more systemic as well. So you agree, right? 
yes, absolutely. I mean, this is caused by a, a, a insufficient local infrastructure that gets overwhelmed when it rains. Uh, but, but I think the feelings Leslie has expressed here about, you know, for many homeowners or renters, when this happens, you feel like it's, it's somehow a personal failing or somehow your fault is pretty common. There are a lot of people who think that, who think it's their problem to solve. Uh, but really it's caused in many cases by uh, a lack of investment or just historically uh, insufficient or biased investment. And, in, and tell me what uh, you mean by that. When you say insufficient local infrastructure, what does that mean exactly? What's missing? Yeah, I mean, a big thing here is that the infrastructure we have across the city is old, and climate change is dramatically worsening storm events. So infrastructure that was sufficient years ago, um, sewer pipes, I mean by this primarily, uh, uh, really no longer is. And so while the government um, agencies that manage it are investing in keeping it up, and they have regular programs you know, for upkeep, I think it's safe to say that these are not scaled to match the pace of climate change. And so in terms of disparities, what you see is it's both historically insufficient investment um, and residents um, oftentimes uh, in the communities that are impacted by this uh, just don't have the ability to fund solutions for themselves, whereas in another uh, uh, neighborhood that's higher income, uh, people could make improvements themselves to reduce this kind of flooding. Mm. Karen, there's a lot of different owners when it comes to the sewer system. So tell us who the players are and, and how it makes this more complicated to find these solutions that, that Bob talks about. Yeah. And the, the actor we're, we're talking about here you know, as a resident, the first part is it's private property where you feel this because it's your basement that was flooded or your renter, you know, it's your things that are destroyed and it's someone else owns it, but where yeah. it happens is actually private property. And that's part of the challenge. The pipes connect out when you want to drain your kitchen sink, but they connect back in when it rains but they're connecting in from the city. So the city really has the sewer mains and uh, has obviously some of the surface in terms of streets and other things. So there's that piece right there. But then the system that that serves the entire region is MWRD. So the bigger pipes that connect through to the deep tunnel that we've heard about and the massive storage system that handle and then ultimately process the water out of the region, that's from that organization that serves the Chicago region. So you've got, you know, if your basement is flooded, you're on private property, but the water probably went through the city and it probably actually is related to MWRD, um, but none of that's helping when you're flooded in your basement. But that's mm-hmm. that larger system and it's a, it's underground. There's basically a massive mesh of tons and tons and tons of pipes of sizes that start smaller and get bigger and get bigger ultimately till you get to the deep tunnel. But when there's all this rain in one small part of the neighborhood, the rain can't move through the system fast enough and you have local flooding. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about flooding and how in Chicago it's it's not bodies of water that necessarily cause the problem. It's the sewer system's inability to process heavy rainfall. Our guests are Leslie Honoré and Bob Dean from the Center for Neighborhood Technology and Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. Bob, since Chicago's flooding often happens in private, as we've talked about, I know that you've been documenting where the flooding happens, trying to sort of direct resources there. Can you talk more about that? Uh, Sure. Yeah. And honestly, this is a place where I'll admit uh, work on this is still needed. There are a number of ways to try to uh, evaluate where flooding happens. They're all flawed. Uh, so a conventional way is to use floodplains, which is is mapped by a federal agency. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, only a small fraction of flooding in Chicago actually happens in those mapped floodplains. It's all over the place. 
some another source is 311 calls, uh, which is how residents in Chicago and some other communities report problems. And 311 is used uh, a lot of times by public agencies to make decisions. But a problem with that is that um, there are um, systematic biases in how likely residents are to call 311. So in higher-income neighborhoods where there's more trust of government, you get more calls. Uh, in other neighborhoods that are lower income or mostly people of color, mm-hmm. where there's less trust of government, you get fewer calls. And so, again, there's this whole, this whole disparity by race and income in terms of how much the flooding is even being reported. Uh, we looked for some work that we did uh, uh, at insurance claims, uh, as, which is not perfect either, because lower-income people are less likely to have insurance than higher-income people. Yeah. So, 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 so the disparity that I've mentioned is probably even worse than what we've mapped and calculated. Uh, so really, there's nothing sufficient. A thing that we've been very interested in is trying to find other ways to document where flooding happens uh, involving residents themselves in being collectors of data through mm-hmm. uh citizen science or community science. So they're, they're taking pictures and for you, right, of the, of the flooding? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We're piloting the use of an app right now. It's only in a couple of communities in the south suburbs where we are collecting data from residents uh, uh, with philanthropic funding uh, uh, being used to support it and also compensate them um, for their effort, uh, where they take pictures of certain locations whenever it floods, uh, which we hope to use to, to either validate or, um, uh, or challenge the... Uh, uh, the understanding of public agencies about where flooding happens. So that could be a solution in the future. We're do, just doing a small pilot at this point. How's it uh, going so I far? I think that could be scaled up if it works. Uh, it's good. Um, we've been doing it for about a year or so. It's in a, a couple communities south of Chicago, so not Chicago itself. Uh, but we're looking for other places to expand that uh, to as well. But the model we've, uh, we've developed works well. We have a number of residents who are actively engaged okay. who seem to value the process. And so... We're right now in the, the 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 process of evaluating all the data that we've gotten in and seeing how we can make it as, as useful as possible for decision-making. Leslie, can you talk to us about uh, some of the common strategies that homeowners are, are recommended to take to address basement flooding and why that's often just out of reach for some people? Well, if it involves um, hiring your own plumber, Sometimes it's out of reach because that's not always in your budget. And yeah, that, that costs very, money. It's very expensive, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, if, if it's a renter issue, there's really nothing you can do. You are completely reliant on whether or not the landlord will upgrade any of the plumbing in your home. Um, so those are the solutions that, you know, homeowners and renters first think of. Who do I call to fix it? Um but once you learn it has to do with the sewer system and there's really nothing you can do until the city addresses it, then that's when you just start to think of how do I mitigate it in my own home? What do I not yeah. store? What do I elevate? What do I raise? What do I become aware of? Um, because you, you really can't solve it because um, I, I don't know how to go into the sewer system in front of my house and put new pipes in. <laughs> you don't? I don't. I'm I know shocked. Things, but it's one thing I didn't learn. And, and flood insurance, that might be a barrier too, right? Flood insurance is a barrier because there are also specifications. I think like one of the biggest things when we learned about how insurance works against people, um, I think Katrina is such a great example where people may have had specific flood insurance because of the storm, but not when the levees broke. That was a whole different thing. And so they weren't even able to place claims. And so it is 
having to understand very complicated and sometimes gate-kept um, preventative solutions, and if you can afford to add that on to your insurance. Yeah. Karen, some of these steps actually push the problem on to other people, right? What's going on with that? Yeah, when you're thinking about that question of you know, what can you do for your home or your residence, it's really about managing that water. And so the first part is trying to keep the water out of the system. And that actually doesn't create challenges for others. So if it's going to rain barrel, um, then it's just it's out of the system. And so that really helps. It's not in the pipes. But if you do something that is like a backflow protector, you can essentially create a barrier between your home and the sewer system. So the water is in the system, but you can keep it out of your home. And so that will work most likely for your home. And as we've been talking about, that is not a small amount of dollars. And it keeps the water out of your home, which is your large financial asset. But what that means is the water is still in the system. and Someone else has to deal with the problem. Yeah. You've got it. Bob, we we know that the... um the deep tunnel project that's been underway for decades. It's meant to help alleviate this problem by creating a container for extra water to go. But it's not clear that Mm -hmm. that will actually fix urban flooding. And I know that your group's been advocating for green infrastructure as as a means to address flooding here in this city. So what is that? Talk to us about that. And and how exactly would it help? Yeah, that's right. So we argue a lot for the use of what we call or, or, or what the industry calls green infrastructure, which is using uh, natural solutions to manage flooding. Uh, c- could be as simple as a rain barrel, but often it, it involves plants of some sort. So rain gardens or bioswales or things like that are, are considered green infrastructure. Uh, and the point of that is to soak up water where it falls. So this does not uh, invalidate the need for well-maintained sewers, but it can really help, particularly because the issue we're dealing with, because it's urban flooding, it's caused by local infrastructure being overwhelmed. So if you can can soak up water before it gets to the sewer system, it really works well as a solution. In other places, like for sea level rise, you would not have the same solution make sense. But here in Chicago, it's a really good way to do it. Uh, you can install green infrastructure in the public right of way, like along roads or on private property and people's, you know, on uh, uh, on front yards, backyards. Uh, or often at institutions like schools or hospitals or religious institutions. And really, it should be in all of those places, in our opinion. We really need some comprehensive efforts to get this uh, uh, to get this to be installed at scale. Uh, they're also beyond um, uh, the flood protection be- uh, uh, benefits. There are some additional benefits also provided by green infrastructure. Yeah. So it can be, for example, part of open space that can be used also for recreation, it can have aesthetic value. It can uh, improve local air quality and reduce heat islands. Uh, and we also have found that it has a small positive increase on property values, uh, which is actually a mixed blessing. In some places, that's great. But in neighborhoods experiencing gentrification and displacement, mm-hmm. it can also be seen as one more thing that's increasing property values and therefore housing costs. And we could have a whole other conversation on that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned us needing, you know, comprehensive efforts here. What is it going to take to make that a reality? Uh, Well, I think one of the challenges now is there's not a lot of systematic investment in this. There are agencies that that do invest in green infrastructure in terms of pilots. So, for example, um, MWRD or the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, which Karen um, had mentioned before, uh, participates in a program in Chicago that I believe you've uh, uh, profiled before called Space to Grow. Yeah. Uh, which is a really great program that puts um, uh, stormwater storage capacity on public school sites, which is is good for the school. It provides recreation. It's good for the neighbors. 
uh, and there are other programs at MWD as well to install uh, green infrastructure, but they mainly focus on um, either local governments or schools or other institutions like that. Um, CNT ourselves is about to start working with um, Cook County's Department of Environmental Sustainability on making a series of green infrastructure investments in the Calumet Corridor in the south suburbs. So there are a bunch of positive examples. I mean, I think that the way to use green infrastructure to manage stormwater is pretty well established right now. It's not a new concept anymore. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every agency who works on this understands it. Uh, But it's just not happening at a scale that matches the problem. We have pilots. We have smaller programs. We don't have the kind of um, systematic investment, uh, which I think is needed to really keep up with climate change. Yeah, as we wrap, Karen, what what you think needs to to change on the city level to to make this kind of flooding less of a problem? Yeah, and it, you know, Bob's absolutely right, particularly as we think about that topic of climate change. I mean, mm-hmm. the projections, the world's just going to look different. The rain patterns are going to be different, and our system is having challenges keeping up with today. It's just like Pakistan at the top, they're dealing with massive flooding from emissions that their residents didn't really cause. It's the same thing here. Uh, the most vulnerable are suffering the most. So it's going to have to be a look at how do we literally do new work in the city? So when we build, how is it built to capture on site? Uh, How are we building roads to actually hold some water temporarily, little bumps that can actually keep some because we're trying to slow it from getting into the system? It'll have to be massive scale on pavers and other things that are permeable so water can go back down. And we're going to need some additional investment in those sewer mains uh, because you'll have to have that complementary effort of what can keep water out of the system and how can the system actually handle more um, as we continue to look at weather, weather patterns that are changing and a system that can't keep up right now. Leslie, what do you want to see? Um, everything that was just mentioned, um, but I want to see it focus equitably. So the neighborhoods that need it the most should be the neighborhoods where funds and solutions are concentrated on first. Simple enough, right? Yep. That's Leslie Honoré and Bob Dean from the Center for Neighborhood Technology and Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor. Thank you all. Now, still to come, we're going to dig into some Chicago Civil War history in our series, What's That Building? That is just ahead on Reset. But first, airline passengers, they now have an online dashboard to help with airport delays and cancellations. Here's Lisa Labas. Hey, Sasha, the Department of Transportation today launching a customer service dashboard ahead of the heavy travel, the travel heavy Labor Day weekend. So you should be able to check the dashboard and see what kind of guarantees, refunds and compensation major domestic airlines are offering in case of flight delays or cancellations. It's also designed to allow travelers to comparison shop and favor airlines that offer the best compensation and that should influence all airlines to follow suit. The city of Chicago and nonprofit groups are mobilizing to provide temporary shelter and other services to dozens of migrants who arrived at Union Station in Chicago last night on buses from Texas. The bus was chartered by Texas Governor Greg Abbott in what he claims is a protest against the Biden administration's immigration policies. The Chinese government wants Washington to repeal technology export curbs after California-based chip designer NVIDIA said a new product might be delayed and some work might be moved out of China. American officials say they need to limit the spread of technology that could be used to make weapons. China's Commerce Ministry accused Washington of abusing export controls to limit semiconductor sales to China and then says trade curbs will disrupt supply chains and global economic recovery. It is 1243. I'm Peter O'Dowd. The Biden administration is forgiving student loan debt for millions of Americans. 
Now comes the hard part. Nothing's ever easy with all the forms to fill out. So hopefully it works and I don't just have my hopes up. We'll ask an expert to guide us through the red tape next time on Here and Now. Two hours of Here and Now. This afternoon from 1 to 3 on WBEZ. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Loop Alliance. Sundays on State returns to State Street this summer for four select Sundays. Learn more about Chicago Loop Alliance's interactive citywide block party at loopchicago.com slash Sundays. And WBEZ's nonprofit spotlight is supported by the University of Chicago Medicine. The U Chicago Medicine Medical Group is expanding its network to make primary care more within reach. Each Chicagoland location offers comprehensive primary care services for the entire family and direct access to specialty care. Learn more at 888-824-0200 or at uchicagomedicine.org for a same-day appointment. Another great-looking day, getting to a high of 88 right now, 85 degrees. This is WBEZ. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Twice a month, we bring you our series on architecture and history in and around Chicago. Things and places that make you pause and wonder, hmm, what is that building? Well, today we're going to head to the south side, to a building that could be easy to overlook, but whose history is closely intertwined with the American Civil War. Here to tell us all about it is Reset's architecture sleuth, Dennis Rodkin. Welcome back, Dennis. Hi, Sasha. How are you? Doing well. Missing you here in studio, I got to say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I couldn't come in. <laughs> That's fine. I'm glad you could join. Uh, I want you to start off by orienting us just a bit.